This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We talk Turo as neighbors push back as they see their streets turn into a place to park rental cars. At Boston's Logan Airport, Turo, the peer-to-peer platform for renting cars, is prohibited from using the facility as a transfer point, and it's become an issue at other airports. Here in Hawaii, state airport officials have ticketed some operators in Honolulu and Maui. They are monitoring the situation closely and are considering changing its administrative rules. The shortage of rental cars following the pandemic shutdown has certainly had unintended consequences. This month, parking complaints from neighbors in Wailai Kohala began surfacing around town. The issue emerged at a neighborhood board meeting this month. Here's Wailai Kohala Board Chair Richard Turbin. Council Chair Waters had received complaints about it, and they reported it to the DPP, the Department of Planning and Permitting, and they uh, assured uh, the, the councilman's uh, office that they're going to do an investigation. And we asked for a report at the next meeting, the July meeting. Now, the city's Department of Planning and uh, a permit, a Permanent Planning uh, handles zoning issues. It told HPR that the uh, Ahua Ava Loop complaint surfaced oh, almost three weeks ago, but an inspector only got out there this week. The state tax office, however, did go out the next day after it got complaints in the East Honolulu neighborhood around the same time. We're told that investigators took pictures of the more than a dozen cars offered on Toro parked on the public streets. State Tax Director Isaac Choi explains his department issued guidelines for those operators who are using the Turo app or other peer-to-peer platforms to rent cars because they are supposed to pay taxes for operating a rental car business. People are beginning to rent their cars, and I think it's, you know, along the lines of vacation rentals and everything. Everybody's trying to make a little extra money and, you know, peer-to-peer cars. I don't know if it's going to be the next big thing, but it's going to be a thing. And and we just want to make sure that uh, if you're renting your car, that you're being really, really fair with uh, any commercial car rental operation. Okay, and so what does that mean? Well, that, that means if you do rent your car through a platform, the platform becomes the lessor, and they have to pay the 4% and the daily rental vehicle charge, that the car surcharge. rental charge, the mm-hmm. surcharge, right? The person that owns the car will have to pay half percent wholesale rate. There's all kinds of other uh, things in the bill I'm not familiar with, like insurance and things like that, to make sure you know everybody's safe. Okay, but, but, but the guidance that you put out basically just wants people to know if you're renting out your car through a platform, let's say like Turo, yes. that you are supposed to be paying tax. Yes, absolutely. And and, and actually, the Turo will have to pay the tax. We make, we make the marketplace, marketplace facilitator pay the tax. And then the, the person that owns the car owes me a half a percent wholesale rate that they wholesale their car to Turo. But the Turo will have to pay the 4% and the rent a car surcharge. Okay. And then there are other issues, uh, like you mentioned, about insurance that people probably should be up on. Yes, yes. And I think that the bill didn't pass, but I think that was one of the topics of conversation. Right. I mean, you're, you're, you're driving a vehicle, so, so I, I would really caution people who want to rent their personal cars uh, they should check with their insurance agent, if not their attorneys, to see what kind of exposure and liability uh, their 
getting into just in case something happens, whether they, they nick a, 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 a sign on the road or another car or, or, you know, even worse, if they do hit somebody and there's uh, some kind of exposure, they should check with their insurance company. I mean, I'm not really sure what, what limits that the, the policymaker would want. But again, when you talk about insurance, you're protecting the victim. So, you know, hopefully they'll take it from that perspective that they did hit another car or they hit another person and there could be, you know, injuries that needs to get taken care of. Well, we've seen the popularity of these platforms just take off, you know, like we did with Airbnb and VRBO. Yeah, or even bicycles. Right. But but with those platforms, I mean, they started popping up in neighborhoods and the neighbors started to be concerned. And we are seeing that as well with these uh, rental car companies where they're they're uh, hugging all the spaces on the public streets and the neighbors don't like it. Yeah, and, and in fact, I've had complaints about people having 20 cars at their houses because that's where they wanted the tourists to pick up the cars. And then, and then the people go around and uh, try to open up every car up and down the, uh, the road on the neighborhood. So, so even it's not the cars that, you know, as for rent... Uh, People seem to be trying to pry open cars. So, yeah, these are the growing pains of, I think, this particular new industry. From where you sit these days over at the tax office, so you just want to make sure that people are real clear about about their liability uh, and their tax bill. Well, tax bills for sure. And, you know, my stance has always been I he- I'm here to level the playing field. If the commercial rent-a-car companies have to pay certain registrations and certain taxes, certain surcharges, I think it's only fair that anybody who goes into that industry pay the same amount. Can you say how much we've collected from these platforms? You know, if you call me in about six months, I'll uh, share those figures with you. This industry is just beginning to grow, and we're looking at the nuances of exactly how they're doing. For example, the fact that somebody's using their house as a pickup point, that's something new to us. We, we already did send an investigator out just the other day just to, you know, to look at the logistics and see how they're doing it and take pictures and, and things like that. So it is kind of new, although the idea has been around for a year or two. As you know, we're, we're focusing in on vacation rentals right now. We're doing a bang-up job on that. So, so in the future, we will have an initiative on uh, a ride-sharing type of operation. But if you give us about six months, I, I think we can probably give you statistics. Okay, so you're in the process of collecting uh, data now. Yes, absolutely. Oh, and methodology too. Data, methodology, you know, how, how they do things, and the reporting. They're supposed to, and then reporting, and the registration. They're supposed to register. So, you know, these initiatives, um, we can't just do overnight, and we, we want to we do it fairly so, you know, we can get tax compliance across the board. And you mentioned uh, the vacation rental issues. Can you talk about what you're doing? Because we finally have some agreement with a couple of these uh, vacation rental platforms to share the data. Yes, and and I I would like to say they've been very, very cooperative, and they've been giving us a whole bunch of data. Uh, We'll be getting uh, data off our Safe Travels program, uh, we're getting, uh, we're we're working together with the different counties. The counties are a little slow in, in this respect, but for tax compliance, we've put out a we have a good sized crew that's that's working on it, and hopefully, you know, people will change their behavior so this the, the compliance initiative can end one day. But again, what we're trying for is you know tax compliance, and 
and making sure that we have the, the penalties in place, the investigators in place, the, the assessors in place. Uh, actually, they are all in place right now. And, you know, and we're actually in full, mo- uh, full, full enforcement mode. What can you share with us as far as uh, any, any uh, collections that you've been able to uh, obtain? Actually, the, the, first, the, the first quarter, we did about four. So I, I, I said the last time somebody interviewed me, I'm, I'm hoping this calendar year we'll, we'll do about $12 million, and, and hopefully we'll do more than that. I, I think the, the following year we'll probably better that, and then hopefully the behavior will start to diminish, and then the, those numbers will go down. Are people paying up, though, when you go after them and say, hey, you were renting for the last five years. Where's our money? Uh, well, they have a choice. They can, they, can actually, they can actually pay me or I can go and take their house. We are not shy of taking their real property. So how many cases have we handled? It is in the thousands. But I can tell you, nobody nobody forfeited their home yet. Okay. A- any one island over another? No. You know, Kathy, that, I hate to tell you this. I'm so Oahu-centric, so I'm, I'm focusing on Oahu. But, but soon, uh, we will be out to the neighbor islands. I know the neighbor, I've been working with the neighbor island um, planning department. So the neighbor islands initiative is just starting. The Oahu initiatives are just going full blast. Getting back then to these rental car platforms, so you're basically just trying to say, okay, what did we learn from Airbnb and v- VRBO, uh, and how do we apply this to rental cars to Toro? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. We have laws in place that makes the marketplace facilitator responsible for the taxes. And and that's the one thing good about our legislature, that they provide us with tools that we can use for our enforcement initiative. So as far as the state laws are concerned, we're good to go. As far as the county laws are concerned, they got to start being a little bit more aggressive in their tax compliance initiatives. But are you able to share any of this info with the, the city and county? The, the bottom line answer is confidential tax information. Of course, we cannot share, but mm-hmm. there's so many ways around that, including whistleblowers. If they were to bring, you know, if they were to come and tell me, hey, you know, this address, it looks like a, I, 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 I suspect them. I suspect them of being a vacation rental or, mm-hmm. or a car operator or something like that. We will immediately go and investigate because that would be a whistleblower complaint that would not be internal document and then and then from that we can start a conversation so to me it's just a fairness thing if you do mm-hmm. have some kind of activity and that another activity pays taxes then everybody should pay taxes don't you think right right yeah, yeah. it's just a fairness thing to me that was state tax director Isaac Choi. Neighbors of the Ahu Ava uh, residents uh, say that they have also complained directly to the company, to Turo, as well as a leasing company about the renters doing business in a residential area. Uh, they tell us that the re- tenants have been threatened with eviction. DPP couldn't give us any numbers this morning, but it did say that it has fielded complaints from other neighborhoods in Eva. Kalihi and Salt Lake. Got an issue uh, in your neighborhood, on your island? We would love to hear about it.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. If you love Hawaii history, you might just know the answer to today's backyard quiz. Hawaii Pono'i is widely recognized as our state anthem. It was written in 1874 by King David Kalakaua with music composed by Captain Henry Berger, then the King's Royal Bandmaster. The song was adopted as the Kingdom of Hawaii's national anthem in 1876 and also served in that capacity for the Republic of Hawaii. The title of the song translates to Hawaii's own, and the melody is reminiscent of God Save the Queen, the United Kingdom's national anthem. Take a listen. Today, Hawaii Ponoi is commonly uh, sung at sporting events at the Aloha, in the Aloha State immediately f- uh, after the Star Spangled Banner. You probably know the lyrics by heart, but you might not know it wasn't always the kingdom of Hawaii's national anthem. Ten years earlier, the monarchy adopted a song composed by Queen Lili Uokalani as its national anthem. For today's Backyard Quiz, do you know the name of Hawaii's national anthem immediately before it was replaced by Hawaii Ponoi? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com. This is a big week. You know, normally in the spring we would see crowds preparing to head to Hilo for the Merry Monarch Hula Festival on the Big Island. The competition will go on this month, but with no spectators. HPR's Kuvehiri, she joins us in the studio to talk about this change. Aloha. Aloha, Catherine. Right? The, the 2020 cancellation <clears throat> of the Merry Monarch Festival was, was quite the disruptor for the Hula world, but also for the host community of Hilo. Uh, this is an event that had been held every year uh, since 1964 when Hilo uh, was trying to figure out what to do after the uh, tsunami had sort of devastated the economy there and thought that perhaps a hula festival uh, would be the answer and it is now one of the most iconic internationally speaking for hula halo. 
but festival organizers this year had to come up with a way to protect uh, the health and safety for everyone involved. So they did move forward with things, but as you said, things are a little different. So all have all hello uh, have agreed to undergo multiple COVID nineteen testings. Uh, currently, all are in a five day isolation period prior to entering the competition. So away from their families uh, in quarantine to get ready for for the festival and then also daily screenings for for symptoms. Uh, Queen's Health Systems has agreed to help out uh, with that respect. And uh, this year we're looking at 15 hello. Now in the past we had talked about uh, this there we're usually a little over 20, so 23. In fact, last year there were 22 hello uh, that were planning to participate, and uh, 15 of those are are participating this year. So some did drop out, including uh, hello from California, uh, who would have had to gone through that entire process. Um, but it's it's an exciting way of making this work under the pandemic. Really, um, what's also different is not having that audience but performances are going to be taped this week so even the television production crew is in quarantine they did Mm. not want to risk any chance of COVID-19 getting into the hula community we we reached out to uh Kilauea Kumuhula Meliana Manuel uh her hello Ke Olumakani Omauna Loa uh she's one that's one of uh two only two Big Island hellos uh they were set to compete in the festival for the first time last year uh before it got canceled here's Manuel when that happened it was it was quite shocking, and not just to the hula world, but everyone all around. And nobody really knew what to do or how to how to approach anything, not just hula. But looking at it from today, uh, it, it, it's almost like we were able to reset and go back to the foundation. And now that we're in the quarantine stage, the quarantine has has put us into situations where we really had to plan a lot more before than the normal because you're you're planning to pack everything that you're going to need not just your everyday necessities but all of your ukana for your your presentations on stage and that's the case for all hello uh, who are participating so straight from quarantine to the stage and back and we're sort of staying in this bubble as the competition uh, goes on. So they're really being super duper precautious. I mean, (laughs) they probably, they don't have to do it really under the inner island safe travels, right? I mean. Right, and uh, we had actually uh, reached out to Mayor uh, Mitch Roth over there in Hawaii County who had said he had offered uh, festival organizers, you know, uh, vaccination rates are up in Hawaii County right now, 59% vaccination. Would you like to relax some of these rules so that uh, you can uh, do a hula as you have before uh, the pandemic? Festival organizers, uh, Luana Covelu especially, had say, no, we're going to stick with this. We want to keep everyone safe, and that's uh, the priority right now. Wow, I mean, you have to hand it to them because it just makes things more complicated. It does, and, it, and it's a bit more expensive in, in some sense because you do have, um, for example, the hello from the Big Island do have to quarantine. They are staying, uh, uh, Man- Manuel who I had spoken to is staying at a Volcano Village Lodge, B- Airbnb, uh, while, they, uh, while they do this. And they wouldn't have to do that under normal circumstances, right? They'd be at home. But 
Uh, it's all, I think, uh, everyone who is participating seems pretty optimistic about having to go through this in order to participate. And uh, like she said, I think it really uh, is helping everyone sort of focus on hula and cut out all the distractions so they really can be ready for performance. Oh, but that's the part of the fun, too, all <laughs> the distractions, right? The shopping. Right. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm curious to see how things will go with uh, sort of not having the audience there, but also uh, businesses in Hilo who have been hurting. Uh, hopefully next year, Mayor Roth says he's excited to see everyone back in Hilo for a uh, back to normal Mermonar. Yeah, and all the vendors that used to be there to sell their wear, you know, uh, during the festival. I mean, that was always a, a big draw, you know, with all the designers um, there on the big island. Exactly. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Yes. No, we will we will be seeing them soon and I know some are already uh selling their things online as part of what is going on, but we hope things will be back to normal okay. next year. Sadly, uh, no no spectators, <laughs> no visitors from Japan uh who just love the hula. Uh but uh, yeah, we'll just we'll have to watch on TV and then uh bring them back next year. That's right, and we'll be reporting about that uh, tomorrow. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kuvehi. Thanks. We've been talking to Kuvehi Hiraishi. Her piece on the Murray Monarch Festival airs tomorrow, and you can find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Lanai today, that is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu will be reporter Brittany Light is on the line today. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning, Catherine. So your story today focuses on Lanai's only uh, newspaper. Yes, there's one newspaper on the island. There are about 3,000 residents, and it was founded in 2008 by a longtime resident. Um, right, right around before the pandemic hit in 2019, the owner, who was also the publisher, the editor, the lead writer, uh, she sold advertising, managed sub subscriptions. Uh, she just decided that she was ready to move on from this journalistic enterprise. Uh, and she sold the paper to Pulama Lina'i, the uh, company that manages the island for billionaire Larry Ellison. Yeah, so I know it's probably raised some eyebrows, right? Like, okay, what does this mean as far as news? Yeah, I think the ownership change raises questions about just the independence of the only news outlet covering this community where Ellison's influence is already so dominant. I mean, he owns a third of the housing, the water utility, the pair of luxury resorts where many, many of the working residents, that's where they work. Uh, one of two grocery stores. So, so you know, 98% of the island is owned by him and managed by him, and now the the newspaper, too. And you reached out to the Poitner Institute, that's the, the journalism think tank, right, about what people should be on guard for. Yes, because, you know, this isn't new. Billionaires and, and uber-wealthy people buying into media you know, it's not new. William Randolph Hearst is a great example from the late 19th century. Uh, 
this is nothing new, but it's it's being done uh, more so today. I think newsrooms are, are really struggling, and there are people with a lot of money who are able to buy them for a uh, relatively little amount of money compared to their fortunes. And I think that there are some really great things that can happen when someone who's very wealthy buys a news organization. Um, you know, if they invest in a newsroom that had been really struggling financially, that's wonderful. Um, you know, some people like, for example, uh, Jeff Bezos at the Washington Post, he reportedly is totally hands off when it comes to what the news organization is covering. And that's what you want. Uh, but there are examples of really rich folks who run news organizations. For example, Bloomberg, uh, owned by former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Um, and, and, you know, he has uh, stepped in and, and uh, played a role in editorial coverage when he had when he launched his presidential campaign uh, in 2019 for the 2020 election, he barred the news organization from investigating his campaign. Yeah, and that's so not good. So you don't want to see things like that. <laughs> yeah, right? and then right. and then with uh, with with Sybil Beat, you know, you have Pierre Omidyar, uh, we do eBay fame, and uh, you know, so it, it it's just interesting to see what has happened with the media landscape. Right. So, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think here, you know, I took to talk to some folks uh, such as the uh, county council person on Lanai, uh, Gabe Johnson. And he said, look, you know, this has always been a company paper, even when it wasn't owned by the company that runs just about everything over here. You know, he said even under the last owner, it was very clear uh you know, some stories just weren't objective. They were really trumpeting the views of, of the majority landowner. And so he said, you know, if you see that here now, uh, it's it's not new. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did speak with the, the new editor uh, and lead writer and publisher, and she said no one's ever told her what to write, and she never would have taken the job had she been told to communicate a particular point of view. Right, and the island used to be owned by David Murdoch. Uh, you know, who had control over everything uh, over there as well. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I guess folks are hopeful. Otherwise, there would be no newspaper there. Right. And, you know, there are there are some signs of investment. The paper has been totally revamped. There are color photos now. There's a um, large, graphic, heavy front page, very magazine style. Um, so, you know, these are these are good things to see that kind of investment being made. Okay, but uh, obviously, of course, uh, people need to be watchdogs. I mean, we have access to lots of news on the Internet, but it's always good to have a critical eye. Right. And, you know, I think we need local news. We need to know what our neighbors are up to. We need to know, you know, what's happening with our police force, what's happening with our local businesses. And that's why the loss of of these small papers is really significant. Um, So in some ways, Ellison's company purchasing the paper may have saved Lenai from losing its its only news outlet. All right. Well, that's something to watch. But thanks so much, Brittany. Take care. Thanks. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. You can find her story on this online at sybilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring pop-up installations across the museum. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Political science scholars look at Viktor Orban's regime in Hungary as a textbook case of rapid democratic decline. First of all is to get everybody hysterical about migration and then to create a kind of polarization. Is America moving in a similar direction? What the Hungarian example has to teach the U.S. about accelerating authoritarianism? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from Kahilu Theater on Hawaii Island, presenting classic rock and blues band from Na'alehu, Bottle of Blues, 7 p.m. this Saturday, in person and on demand. Tickets at kahilutheater.org. We've been covering a lot of different topics on the show, and listeners have been responding. On June 14th, we talked to State Parks Assistant Administrator Alan Carpenter about a permitting system for travelers heading to the Napoli Coast. Here's some of what Alan had to say. Only 60 people a day are legally allowed at this moment to get beyond Hanukapiai, and we think that's the appropriate number. You know, and there's a lot of issues you need. A, you need a different sort of amount of experience and supplies, et cetera, if you want to head down the coast. And the system presently is working, you know. So the, the real issue with Kalalau is that we have a capacity, but the, the worldwide demand to get to this bucket list hike simply drives a, a, a frenzy of people trying to, to compete for the same 60 slots, right, every day. You know, the, there have been people who've, who've called up and said, you know, your system's not working. It's sold out, you know, three minutes after midnight. And, in fact, that means our system is working beautifully. And a listener left this voicemail. Hi, it's Joe Hicks calling from the island of Kauai. just want to uh, ask about Kalalau Trail permits. I really like the way that the K.A. Beach master plan included some um, accommodations for locals so that we can get in there without having to uh, acquire a permit. I'm wondering if something like that can be done for Kalalau Trail, um, you know, for day use or for uh, overnight, but especially for day use, but I can just hike in there if I have a time off work and I want to get in there. Thank you. We reached back out to the state's uh, parks office with Joe's question. Here's a statement from State Parks Administrator Kurt Cottrell. Just before COVID-19 hit, the DLNR Division of State Parks was preparing a method for Hawaii State residents to obtain a permit from their Kauai office where they could reserve a number of slots. Uh, the, the, the State uh, Parks Office will once again pre- try to, pre- to prepare that process. Residents can hike to Hanukapiai without a permit, uh, DSP has yet to set up a new permit process for day use past that point. This is due to the need to enforce against hikers that go to camp without a permit. Another listener wrote in with a few thoughts after our public access show. Here's what Chris wrote. 
There is a particularly egregious problem going on at McKenna Beach on Maui. DLNR has gone as far as to put up a metal barrier with a locked gate and send police out to issue citations to people who are on Little Beach, the northernmost part of McKenna Beach, past 4 p.m. I did not take video the last time I was there because they were singling out folks who were questioning this and I didn't want to be a target. It was really effective at keeping folks from asking uncomfortable questions. I saw them full throat yelling at someone who was leaving about not wearing a mask and citing those that persisted. The real issue was that they were asking questions. First, I thought all beach access was 24 hours with no exceptions. Second, is DLNR even allowed to decide who and when people can come and go from the beach? I live on Oahu and have only seen a small slice of this problem. The folks on Maui have been dealing with it all year. And we had two listeners call in to share their thoughts on our roundtable discussion about the new play, Open Your Heart Wide. Hi, this is Carl from Kapoho calling. I was enjoying your show today about the uh, heritage of Hawaiian culture and how it was affected by missionaries and the play coming up that reflects some of that. I just want to say it's sad if you look at today. I'm not a Hawaiian by blood, and I'm not a Hawaiian by birth. My grandfather uh, mapped the territory of Hawaii in 1920 to 1935. I moved to Hawaii. I came after Woodstock in 69. Uh, I followed Jimi Hendrix. Anyone who's been missionary they shut the door to their own very special, very powerful sources of energy and guidance. And that's what I think is wrong about missionaries. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. I love everybody. Aloha. So lucky to be alive. Hi, my name is Keala Vicina, calling in about the um, program Open Your Heart. It's uh, from Island of Maui. This is such a interesting topic and um, um, it seems as though the mission house and all the descendants have never had any hardship or understanding of hardship such as history and laying claim that the alii's were in total support of the missionaries progress so it's very biased i'm sure the play is um, based on good acting and skills because of the education that everyone that participated is a part of. So I don't think I appreciate that. Well, we thank you for your letters. If you heard something on our show and would like to add your two cents, please call our talkback line 808-792-8247 or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Move over, Plover. There's a new shorebird in town. Thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, we got the song of the ulili for you. These indigenous birds recently packed up for the long flight across the Pacific for their mating season. But they'll be back in August. In today's Manu Minute, University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart tells us how to keep an eye out for this bird until it returns. The ulili, or wandering tattler, is a sandpiper that is indigenous to Hawaii, meaning that they're naturally found here as well as other parts of the world. They're about 10 inches tall, mostly gray, with long yellow legs and a white stripe in front of their eye. 
Like other sandpipers, they use their long bill to probe in sand and rocky crevices for worms, crustaceans, and mollusks. And they can often be identified from a distance by the way they bob their tail up and down while they hunt for food. You can often find ulili foraging alone along shorelines and streams in Hawaii from late summer through spring. But by May, most of them begin their long migration across the Pacific to Alaska, where they breed along mountain streams. They're a bit unusual for sandpipers in that their babies are good swimmers. Like many Hawaiian birds, the name ulili sounds like their call. In Hawaiian culture, the ulili is one of the sacred messengers and scouts of the gods. Their English name, Wandering Tattler, refers to their alarm calls to warn other birds when hunters or predators are nearby. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Forest Bathing Hawaii, offering guided walks to reconnect with the natural world, in person at Lion Arboretum for individuals, private and corporate groups, and virtual walks gifted to frontline workers. ForestBathingHI.com In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you to name the song that preceded Hawaii Ponoi as the Kingdom of Hawaii's national anthem. The song was adopted as the kingdom's anthem in 1866. It was written by Lydia Kamakaeha Dominus, who would later become Queen Liliuokalani. It was done at the request of King Kamehameha V, who wanted a national anthem for the Hawaiian people to replace the British anthem of God Save the Queen. The Queen wrote that after it was written. Um, the king admired the beauty of the music and spoke enthusiastically without the words. Take a listen to this modern version. By July 1867, the song was printed and available for purchase in Honolulu, becoming the first of Liliuokalani's compositions ever published. It served as the Kingdom of Hawaii's national anthem until 1876, when it was set aside by King Kalakaua in favor of his own composition, Hawaii Ponoi. If you recognize the lyrics and melody, then you know that He Mele Lahui Hawaii is the answer to today's backyard quiz. And congratulations to Nola Nahulu. You got it right. Uh, Nola is the Kauai Hau Church choir conductor. So mahalo for uh, calling in. That's our quiz. And if you have an idea for one that you would like to share, write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Eka ha 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 
This Father's Day fell on the eve of a big Olympic announcement. The members of Team USA for skateboarding were named and the top, at the top of that list was an East Honolulu young man. 22-year-old Heymana Reynolds gave his father the gift of being be able to say he's the dad of a, an Olympic athlete. Here's Heymana talking about his dad on the NBC7 podcast. My dad, they, my, both my parents are so supportive in everything I do. Like my dad, I'm pretty sure out of my entire skate career with contests, I think he's missed one because it was in Qatar and we couldn't really get him all the way over there. But yeah, he's been there through everything. He's been on the deck for every contest, coaching me, supporting me, helping me get there in every way. And yeah, big shout out to them. They're still supporting me right now. You know, it's awesome. And it is the first time that skateboarding will be featured as an Olympic sport, and there are two members with ties to Hawaii. We caught up with Matt Reynolds yesterday afternoon uh, as he and Heimana took a break from training in California. Father's Day, we had to go up to L.A., and they had a hotel room for us. We ended up, um, yeah, just traveling the whole day, and then he had, like, some photo shoots for a shoe company, and then we stayed in the hotel and then the following morning was the team announcement. Officially on there. Yes, exactly, and very excited. Well, I think so many people are just bummed that Japan isn't allowing spectators at the game. And, and you know, <laughs> I, for one, think they should at least let the parents go. Yeah, I know. that That's really tough. And then I think some of the athletes are minors, too, and I think they might even have trouble some of their parents as well so i feel for them i think they're just allowing the coaches or a few coaches only is there anybody on the skateboarding team that's a minor on the girls side there is oh okay so they yeah. still have to work that There's out maybe one one or two girls that are minors i believe on the girls park team well so what are you going to be doing then when Heymana uh competes how are you going to watch I'm, this yeah, I'm going to try and get my best reception and find, you know, do my homework and find out exactly when it's going to be viewed so I don't miss anything, I, I guess. Yeah, that must be such a bummer for you and your wife. Uh, and your daughter, too, yeah. right? Because, I mean, gosh, you're a skating family. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, and it's, I've been to every competition since this all began when he was six years old. So it's, But I have confidence that he's going to do well. And, um, yeah, I'm very just... Just very, very excited that he made it this far and on to the Olympic team and history is being made. And um, it was a grueling, comp grueling competitions, you know, the last couple of years leading up to uh, COVID. So I'm just really excited. So uh, did I read right that he initially, his name was initially left off? Well, the original team, they had come up with the original team I think three years ago, the national team, the uh, national team, sorry. So they had uh, the original national team that they came up with was kind of like the ones they chose and off of points and rankings. And then Heymana didn't make that gotcha. original national team. So he had to go back and kind of fight for it and, uh, you know, claw his way up the rankings to, to make it onto the national team the following year. Yeah. But he is leading now, right? Yes. Yeah, so he won the whole Olympic qualification as the number one pick hopeful world championship. And that's what uh, 
gave him like 80,000 points that projected him all the way into first place. And then he held that first place for the last year and a half, but they had COVID. So he, yeah, he, yeah. So he won the overall rankings as the number one pick for the Olympics. Yeah. That's awesome. How else is he preparing in this last month or so? You know, it's a fine line too with skateboarding, you know, you, um, you get injuries, so you really want to be careful. I know going into these Olympics, there's three athletes for each discipline. So there's three park skaters, men, three park skaters, girls, three park skaters, men for street. I mean, three street skaters, men, and then three street skaters, women. So that makes, what is that, 12 skaters total. So, I mean, there's no alternates. So if anything happens or if you get COVID or if you get injured or you're pretty much out and then the U.S. team only has you know two riders left or or you know what I mean so it's a fine line we you know you want to be careful injuries are part of skateboarding and you just never know when it can happen it can happen on the easiest little trick it can happen on a a, a new a big trick you know so um yeah we're just keeping the muscles and joints fresh and then Doing a lot of strength training and stretching and preparing for for the Olympic Games, yeah. You often hear about athletes training so that they peak at a certain point, you know, for the competition. But with COVID, exactly. I think that's just kind of that kind of messed everybody up. Yeah. And that's kind of the the strategy that we're going for too is just working his way up to it and then trying to peak when we get there when he gets there and yeah and trying to hold that hold that position you know throughout the practices and everything well i think everybody from hawaii is going to be watching uh and i'm not sure about the coverage you know how much coverage they're going to a lot yeah i know and that's what i guess i have to do my my research on too as well and just the whole time difference and all that as well but hopefully we'll have a clear answer um before it arrives and uh, I'm just looking at a picture from online, you know, with uh, Heimana's uh, USA jacket on. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it really is just an incredible dream. And, you know, it's such a rush for the kids to see somebody from the hood, you know, make it to the Olympic team like this. It's, like, awesome. Yes, it's it's very important, and we're very excited. And as you know, Heimana's been skateboarding for the last, like 15 years plus since he was six years old he's 22 now and he's put in a lot of you know work and injuries and uh training and just you know um you know and he's been competing since he was seven or eight years old so this is kind of everything he knows and um yeah we're very excited and he's yeah and as you know it's a family business and um yeah, we love sharing skateboarding with the world and teaching kids how to ride a skateboard. And there's so many more things that you learn from skateboarding. You know, there's life lessons and, you know, never give up, keep trying. And, yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing. So I think it's going to be a great opportunity for the whole world to, to see it and see how beautiful it is and the creativity. And, yeah, we're very excited. Are you folks in contact with, you know, the other the other moms and dads? Jordan made the team too, right? Yes, Jordan made the team for the women's park. Yeah, I talked to some of the parents, and we're, uh, I'm, I've always been a good friend of Jordan's mother as well. And so you guys are all in the same boat. Just gonna, She's going to be watching from California, and you're going to be watching from Hawaii? 
yeah so <laughs> very exciting yeah. and um and it yeah it seems like skateboarding has really gained popularity too i mean after uh covid and kind of the individual you know everyone seems like they want to do these individual sports you know team sports are a little mm-hmm. more difficult to run and you know and it seems just like fishing and surfing and bicycling and skateboarding and these individual sports have been gained popularity so it's pretty cool skateboarding going mainstream that was matt reynolds proud father of Heymana reynolds and the owner of the company proper uh, ride shop in kalihi the other hawaii skater on the team is jordan barrett who lists her hometown as haleiwa uh, and reynolds says he's been told the coverage of the skateboarding competition may come at the beginning of the olympic coverage which runs july 23rd to august 8th he says the athletes will have to leave within 40 hours 48 hours of their last competition he's looking to having Heymana home uh, on his way back from Japan. Well, we're all out of time now. Tomorrow we plan to talk about time out. And summer officially started this week. We want to know what you think the official fruit of the summer is. Here's our intern, Matt Fairfax, with his pick. I wanted to say the avocado because I figured why not be controversial and why not stir a few feathers. An avocado, very versatile. You can put it on toast, put it on salad, put it on anything you want, put it on burgers too. But it's quite obvious that the papaya is the official fruit of the summer because the color, the texture, the juice, and the overall flavor of the papaya can never be topped during our summer months. What? Papaya? Agree? Disagree? Do you think anyone who says anything other than mango is dead wrong? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard today? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.